0: available by email to all participants after the webinar for further review and sharing. All participants will be muted during the presentation. We'd love to hear from you during today's presentation and we'll be answering your questions at the end of the session. If you have a question, please send it through the Ask a Question tab at the bottom of your player, which is on the right hand side. If we don't get to your question today, we'll we'll be sure to follow up afterwards. So without any further delay, I'd like to kick things off by welcoming Irving. Irving.
1: Thank you so much, Romilly. Um, Thank you, everyone. Uh, I hope my volume level is good. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. My voice, I pray, will hold out. Um, I, too, finally and ultimately contracted COVID. I'm on the upside. And as far as I know, go to meeting or go to webinar is not a vector for the virus. So I think you're all safe. The pandemic is yet again, looming its head in many places around the United States and around the world, and creating chaos. And while the pandemic had a role to play in the current staffing crisis, The seeds for this crisis were planted quite a long time ago, have been um, brewing, cooking, stirring, being cultivated, and uh, are now fully ripening. Uh, The agenda for today is to talk about where we are, the current situation. Uh, Second, and I'd like to spend most time talking about this, what can we do now? To retain, recruit, and cultivate a robust human resources team in our long-term care operations, I'm going to focus the retention, recruitment, and cultivation um, aspects. I'm going to focus on systems. I'm going to look as as clearly as possible at systems that enable retention, recruitment and culture, uh, culture, cultivating good um, environments in which to work. I'm going to talk about leadership and the difficulty and yet the importance of change. And throughout it all, I hope to be focusing on practical steps that we can take to enable these systems changes. Um, so where are we? Well, before the pandemic, the median annual turnover for registered nurses in 2017, 2018 was 102%. That's in, in long-term care. The turnover for licensed practical nurses, 80% and for nursing assistants, 98%. So what do we think of that? Do we just think that's a price of doing business? I've heard CEOs say that to me. However, in the current environment, the previous attitude toward frontline direct caregivers as well as entry-level employees such as dietary, scheduling, et cetera, we can no longer treat these employees. We can no longer consider these as uh, interchangeable, uh, as disposable, and perennially renewable resources because they're not. Um, We've just had two major uh, releases within the United States, a fact sheet by the White House on long-term care, which was referenced by President Biden in his uh, State of the Union address. And as far as I know, in my uh, 50-something years in in healthcare and 30-plus years in long-term care, I've never heard long-term care mentioned in a State of the Union address. So it's certainly a first. The White House fact sheet and the National Academy of Sciences report focus on staffing a lot. And in the White House report, there were uh, 21 recommendations which I've dissected and uh, put a blog on the website for you all to take a look at. But a big bunch of these recommendations had to do with staffing inspections and fines including recommendations about reducing costs so i don't consider such combination of improbable incongruities to be practical i'm going to instead try to focus on practical things that we can implement in our uh, operational environments we got here through system neglect. And actually, there is no system in long-term care. Um, very articulate paper appeared within the past year in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, making this case pretty powerfully, that there is no system in long-term care. It's a cobbled together, ragtag, disjointed set of uh, regulations and provision. Uh, Ageism is an important part of it. I'm going to drill down a little bit into that further. Uh, The dominant metaphor, I've talked about this a lot, the dominant metaphor in long-term care is entirely negative. Nobody looks forward to going into or relocating into a nursing home. Uh, People don't even relish the idea of having home care at home. Um, The question arises as to whether or not Uh, Long-term care as a business or an enterprise, Um, the the current regulatory environment uh, seems to view it as both a uh, social safety net service and as a business. And I think that in part uh, suggests why we got into this mess. And then you add the pandemic. The pandemic was a precipitating cause of the staffing crisis, but not a causal reason for the staffing crisis. And we'll drill down a little bit into that too. Uh, Old adage, follow the money. If you look at what the United States spends money on in healthcare by category, we can see that this top line is the United States here. And over here, this uh, medium blue is long-term care. And it spends per capita $516 per capita per year. Uh, in the United States in 2018. Comparable country average, that is to say, OECD countries, and here's the list in here provided by uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. uh, Average in OECD countries is more than twice that. So what does that say? It says um, that we're not spending as much as comparable Western countries in long-term care. Well, is that because we have a lower disease burden of chronic illness? Um, no. Does it? Is that because we have um, um, more uh, efficient systems and we don't have to spend that much? No. Uh, it, do, is it because uh, we are just more effective at delivering long-term care? Uh, the answer is no. So the reasons for that come down to a few. Then you add the pandemic, and we can see here that the uh, nursing and residential care facilities payrolls uh, plummeted as the result of the pandemic, plummeted as the result of the emptying out of many of these operations, the suspension of home and community-based services, as well as fear among the workers themselves illness among the workers themselves and before you know it you've lost 400 plus thousand individuals from a workforce of about uh, 4.5 million so that's a pretty significant loss and when you look at the winners and the losers since february 20 uh 2020 to november 2021 nursing and residential care was among the biggest losers in terms of overall jobs in the job market according to the labor department this is really significant in, in 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 several ways and one of them is well where did these workers go some of them didn't work for a time but others stayed in the workforce and where they went was they went to other uh health care provision settings so community care and uh nursing care facility Workers went to outpatient centers, physician offices, home health care services, hospitals, and overall other types of health care settings when they could. Um, the, some long-term care employers were hurt, have been hurt more than others. Uh, assisted living hasn't been hurt, for example, as badly as nursing care uh, in, the, in, the, in the sweepstakes of job losses and so the question comes to uh, many people ask, well, what are we going to do? Is is money the answer? Do we simply have to pay more? Well, wages are going up. Earnings are up. But as you can see here, there's a profound gap, according to the Labor Department data, between all private service sector employees and nursing and residential care facilities. The gap is substantial and it You'll see that it tracks along very nicely here, and it's unclear that operators in the sector are going to be able to overcome this pay gap. The value of a CNA based on his or her salary, and as we know, mostly her salary, the average in the country, uh, according to the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is uh, slightly under $14 an hour. Now that's going up. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that 17% of the CNAs in the United States live below the federal poverty line. 17% of the CNAs live below the federal poverty line compared to 9% of all American workers. So the question is, what is enough? What's enough salary? What's enough benefits? How do we value this position? if we devalue the position based on money and pay, uh, the rest seems um, pretty clear about what we think of or what we had thought of these frontline workers. And the root cause analysis, I would submit to you that uh, the lack of value devoted to these workers is ageism, it's ableism, it's sexism, and it's racism. And that's just the way it is a big part of this workforce are elderly women and elderly women of color and persons of color uh, make up 59 percent of CNAs and 26 percent of LPNs working in um, long-term care various long-term care environments so these are pretty pretty cold hard facts so the question is what do we do now so Uh, what I've described so far is what we would refer to in marketing hydraulics and economics as externalities. These are factors which are outside of your operation and not necessarily under your control. You have no control, for example, over what Walgreens down the street chooses to offer their entry-level employees. You have no Um, control over what Amazon puts in its package for educational benefits for its or childcare benefits for its workers at the warehouse or distribution center right down the road from from you you have no control over that and you have no control over the overall hydraulics in the labor markets the labor markets continue to be extremely tight with there being lots of jobs and not enough Uh, age qualified individuals to follow up on those jobs. What is within our control is to listen. Uh, I'm going to be very specific about what that means, to listen, learn and to change. That is in our wheelhouse. Uh, Our best case response in long-term care to retain employees, that's the first step, it's not to recruit more, It's to retain, keep what you've got and to get better at it, get better at keeping the team that you have, the individuals you have who represent the service categories, represent the psychological profile, the demographic profile, uh, that represent those whom you wish to keep, get better at keeping them. And I've got some very specific suggestions about that. With regards to recruitment, uh, we need to, Earn a greater share of the supply that's available of what you need. Earn a greater share of the supply of what you need. You can't, you may not be able to compete. I'm gonna say you can't compete with what uh, Amazon or Walgreens does in your marketplace area, but you can compete in other ways that would render your employment employment at your location uh, more attractive, more compelling for a certain important segment of the workforce available in your marketplace area. And finally, cultivate. There's been an awful lot of ink spilled over long-term care culture. Culture, I'm going to define it further, uh, but culture produces relationships and it is the relationships between and among individuals, employees, supervisors, within your work environment that dictate whether those individuals are willing to stay or whether they're willing to leave. And I've got some anecdotes and very specific examples about what I mean by relationships. So first, the first thing that we have control over is keeping what you've got. So the first step of Keeping what you've got is understanding why people leave. And it's very easy, it's a very quick fix for us to fall back upon. Well, they got a better job. There's almost always more to it than just that. So it's important for us to understand why people leave in great detail and as often as possible. And the best way to do that is to ask people. Um, There are um, 15,000 nursing of 15,269 nursing homes in the United States there uh, are tens of thousands of assisted living residences and even more uh, home health agencies and my hunch is that fewer than 10% of that entire array of uh, employment environments conduct effective rigorous exit interviews on their employees and why not i think it's because we just haven't had to do it we've looked at the population that empl- that we employ as replaceable as a perennially renewable resource they are not and yet other sectors other service based sectors do these exit interviews much more rigorously much more effectively and harvest the benefits associated with doing them so we want to ask why they're leaving. We've also we also want to ask, and we can ask this on exit interviews, but we should also be asking this on a regular basis. Why individuals have stayed. It might be your location. It might be uh, momentum. Oh, I've just stayed because I've been here so long. I wouldn't know what else to do. It could be your physical location. It could be the job flexibility. The hours of work allow the staff person to fit in exactly another job and childcare in their busy lives. We need to understand what those factors are in order to understand what we can do in order to be even more of the good things and less of the bad things about why people want to work for us. So if we're losing 10, 12, 15, 20 percent of our workforce, which is what the numbers look like uh, across the country, It may be worse or it may be better in your particular location. If we're losing that much of our workforce, it behooves us to take a systematic systems-based approach and better understand why they're leaving and why they're staying, because that's something we can do. We have control over that, and we can gain insights from it. And here's what we've heard. What we hear when we do our surveys and uh uh, interview interviews with departing and current employees the number one reason people leave people say she just didn't listen i can't tell you how many times we've heard that in the tens of thousands of surveys that we've done this is one of the most frequent phrases that we hear she he him it fill in the blank the executive director the leadership the supervisor fill in the subject that's almost as many individuals or positions as you can imagine, just doesn't listen. What does that mean? It means that the individual, the supervisor, or the person whom this respondent identifies just didn't take the time to listen to that individual. And if she did, if if she did listen, the fact of her having listened wasn't conveyed it wasn't demonstrated to that individual that he was listening and that will come up when we talk about training and leadership That will talk about empathetic listening skills as being one of the three critical skills-based categories that has to be developed in the sector if we're going to get serious about competing for the dwindling Uh, category of resource, which is prime working age individuals who are willing and interested in being employed in long-term care. The second reason is money and compensation. And this is a new development. I have to think of my family. We've interviewed individuals who haven't wanted to leave employment in long-term care, who are committed and even in some cases devoted to the patients and the individuals they serve. But when Amazon offers uh, a pay rate rise of five, six, $7 an hour, plus educational benefits, plus a f- more flexible work schedule, the individuals say, uncle, they say, I-, I have to think of my family. And then the third category, which is again a recent category, is burnout and fear. And that shows up like, Uh, concerns about an individual who's elderly and living with us, or whom the um, frontline care worker in a nursing home has to take care of, outside the home, an aunt, an uncle, a stepmother, stepfather, uh, and they're concerned about them. And then the burnout shows up as I I just can't do this anymore. And we've all read a lot about that. In fact, my sense is that uh, we will discover Uh, in very short order, that the quote-unquote burnout that's being read about really has all the hallmarks of post-traumatic stress disorder. So what can we do? Let's look at systems-based interventions that we can undertake that will improve retention. The first is performance appraisal. So what is performance appraisal? It's everyone who's Employed individuals knows what a performance appraisal system looks like. uh, And the issue with performance appraisals that we can do is to increase the frequency of performance appraisal and reduce the complexity. In most institutions, in most organizations, the performance appraisal system looks like a once annual or twice annual at the most sit down interview between a boss and a subordinate where the individual being evaluated uh, is uh, reviewed by the boss against some standards or behavioral criteria against some job objectives. And these meetings, especially during a pandemic, tend to be relegated to secondary. They tend to get neglected. So we've gone now two plus years, and my hunch is that an awful lot of uh, a lot awful lot of you out there haven't been adhering to your regular performance appraisal schedule. I would submit to you that once a year a performance appraisal is more deleterious than beneficial. Performance appraisals need to occur on a regular basis. They need to occur in a way that gives both constructive and positive feedback to the employee and solid feedback to the employer, to the supervisor. Needs to be two-way, needs to be very frequent, and it, it has to be structured in a way that there's no big emotional charge built up around it, which is what happens now. Oh, my performance appraisal is coming up. Oh, what's he going to do? Oh, what's he going to do? It's, it's just so counterproductive. There's been some interesting research in this regard, which is not quite definitive, but it's certainly directional, suggesting that the typical annual performance appraisal sit-down interview is counterproductive and not very constructive. There's some simple models for doing this. I've included, I will include some links to the Society of Human Resources Management um, and how these can be done much more efficiently and much more effectively. And if you you want, you could always be in touch with me and I'll explain or give you some suggestions about that. Increase frequency, reduce complexity, exit interviews. Is this person a possible rehire? Now, If if the person that you that has left or that you have terminated is a distant dot in your rear view mirror, um, that's too bad because there are some people who have left who would be terrific rehires for you. Uh, They may have left because Sally didn't get along with George and they were fed up with it, so they moved on down the road. Well, if Sally or George are no longer there it may be time for Mary to come on back. So the former employees of your operation can and should be considered a very interesting and potential good resource for rehire. That's just one value or possibility behind exit interviews. Current staff surveys and interviews. Now, Many of you are conducting employee interviews. If you're not conducting employee surveys, employee interviews, uh, I I don't know what to say. You really, it's a, it's an tremendous oversight. It's an important oversight and it needs to get fixed because the critical piece we're going to see just a little bit here is that your single best recruitment channel are your current employees. Your single best recruitment resource should be your current employees. So under current staff surveys and interviews here, I've got willingness to recommend or refer and then actual referrals. Because if if your employees are referring potential employees to you, then that's saying everything that needs to be said about that individual's loyalty to you, their satisfaction in working with you, and their engagement in your mission, purpose, and your uh, the work that you're doing. So the <clears throat> it's a tremendously important uh, insight into the culture, into the attitudes, perceptions of your employees. And then the other thing that we can do is take training communications much more specifically and seriously. And in the two skills categories that I'd like to emphasize today and have you take away, the first is listening. Empathetic listening programs. They're everywhere on the internet. They're available on YouTube. You can get them on YouTube free of charge. Uh, There are structured, Uh, empathetic listening skills workshops available. There's printed material from the Society of Human Resources Management. In other words, the only reason for not doing this is that we haven't paid attention to it and actually started to do it. And I'm encouraging you, I'm urging you, because listening is absolutely at the heart of building relationships. We know this from our personal lives and the same is true in our employed environments. If we don't listen, we're conveying the message that people don't care. And if you send the message that you don't care, then the employee don't, won't care. The second piece here is conflict. It's impossible. I am. It's just not possible to have an intact work group without Conflict. It's just not possible. And in these environments, with workforce being constrained, regulatory pressure, uh, even fines being seen, uh, lowered utilization rates, therefore revenue pressures, in these highly pressurized environments, conflict is inevitable. And yet, how many of you have been trained in? managing conflict effectively. My hunch is that there wouldn't be very many hands up if we had a poll. So there are very good uh, skills-based training programs available to teach how to identify your own conflict style, how to identify other people's conflict styles and to work through the conflict without working on the person without working on the without reverting to personal snipes jibes or just ignoring people altogether so empathetic listening and conflict management two extraordinarily important training interventions for every every long-term care uh, operation and for retention when we do our staff surveys Uh, Standard sorts of questions look something like this. When others ask me about my job, I urge them to consider, tell them to possibly consider, or urge them to never consider. And If you do this, if you set this survey up correctly, employees will answer this question for you and indicate to you whether or not they are willing to refer other potential employees or even former employees to your operation. The best case response in in the retention category is to keep what you've got and to get better at keeping what you've got. To for recruitment is to get more of the supply of what you need. And under culture is to develop stronger relationships. And all of the suggestions so far uh, will enable us uh, to do that. so in terms of recruitment, uh, it's important to look at who would want to work for you. That's not a snarky sort of statement. That's a uh, actual systems-based uh, strategic question. Who would want to work for you? Uh, and the and the question then becomes thinking inside and outside of the boxes. This is data that you see on the slide here from uh, Kaiser Family Foundation on the long-term care workforce and who they are. So the gender, socioeconomic, even the uh, location area where individuals live, their zip codes is extremely important and would would help you to analyze uh, from whom you will attract further uh, employees, additional employees, new employees. And when we're looking at systems-based recruiting, we look at where the supply is, where the supply of uh, age, uh, qualified individuals are, uh, generating leads, lead management, speed to offer and onboarding. So what we've found is that um, there's a significant drop-off, even in our clients that are successful at generating uh, what should be enough leads or inquiries for opening open jobs, that there's very often a delay of many days, sometimes weeks in moving that candidate through the system in order to get him or her to a point where they're being offered a job. That time allows a drop off in that individual's interest or it allows that individual to get recruited by another company, and that is just uh, painful because you've paid for that lead. You have earned that lead through your recruitment activities. This is something that's of value to you and it's being lost because of this uh, lead management system, your ability to offer that, get that person to the job offer quickly. So I would urge us all to do a, a quappy to do a quality, uh, assessment on our intake, our lead generate, our lead processing systems. Who has to approve? What forms need to be filled out? Are the forms online and accessible online so that the individual can fill them out herself or himself? All of these things uh, are systems-based obstacles to your converting a higher percentage on these leads. The final piece about onboarding, Uh, but we've got lots of research. Stackpole and Associates has done tens of thousands of employee surveys in the long-term care sector and employee surveys of employed individuals shortly after employment. And it's very clear that within 30 to 60 days, there's a profound drop off in individuals' willingness to stay in employment with their new employer. So the 30 to 60 day period is extremely important to that individual's long-term loyalty and engagement with that job. So I would urge you to take the same systems-based approach to looking at the onboarding. Everything from what does the employee handbook look like? How much are we trying to just reiterate stuff or say stuff that should be printed um, or handing out gobs of printed material to a thirty something. Not going to read it. Uh, so uh, it needs to be streamlined and looked at strategically. That's a systems based obstacle to more effective recruiting and retention in in the uh, in the sector. So, what's the best source of leads for employees? in long-term care. Uh, Too bad I didn't insert a poll here. I'd like to see what you all said. I'm gonna end the suspense by saying your existing employees are absolutely your best source for leads. Your existing employees, uh, if they are um, engaged, your existing employees, if they're loyal, they have broad social networks of their own, and they are talking about what their experiences are at work they are consuming your service as a service provider of employment they are consuming that and as consumers they have distinct opinions and perceptions which they are they are freely sharing with their friends and families so your existing employees are your best source of recruitment. Your worst source of leads of recruitment are cash incentives. So we've seen a proliferation of employment incentives in the form of cash bonuses, hiring bonuses. This is absolutely a terrible idea. The data about this is so clear that people who accept cash bonus offers for employment in in all service sector categories, all service sector jobs, they, they will jump at the chance of the cash bonus and they will jump back out again just as quickly and as easily. Job hoppers hop. That's what they do. So if you really want to both burn cash and be profoundly disappointed because the position is empty again in five to six to eight weeks, go ahead and offer a cash incentive. If you feel that you need to offer a cash incentive or some type of incentive as a competitive move in your local marketplace environment, because other people are doing that and they seem to be attracting people, please don't be seduced into that faulty logic. There are very good things that can and might be done in the form of incentives other than cash. Incentives which would have more meaning and more retention capability than just the cash. Okay, so if employees are our best resource, are you currently the Challenging question, are you currently receiving referrals from your current employees? If you are not, why not? And if you've already got a referral program in place, here's what you need to do. First of all, you need to announce you're canceling it. You're canceling your employee referral slash employee referral bonus whatever you call the thing you're canceling it because it's not working then you're going to recruit three or four staff not the usual suspects but staff at the ground level this is right out of uh w edwards deming quality improvement 101 you're going to recruit those individuals not based on the fact that they're supervisors or Maria is the boss's favorite, none of that stuff. You're going to get three to four staff, not the usual suspect suspects, and you're going to give them a task. Within three or four days, come up with non-cash incentives or ideas that will help attract employees, current employees back, former employees back, or new employees to work in within your operation and hold them to it. Ask them, get them to volunteer if you can, appoint them if you need to, but explain the seriousness of the situation that you want their ideas and then take their ideas and implement them publicly. Now, if they come up with ideas that are financially unfeasible or would clearly break ERISA, FLISA rules, you know, le- legally not feasible. You can explain that, but invariably there are a few nuggets in each of these groups that can and uh, when implemented have enormous benefit. And for the first of which is to just show the staff, the rank and file, that this contribution was listened to and implemented in a serious fashion. Now, if in your employee referrals program, you struggle implementing an employee referral program, uh, you've already answered an important question, even if you don't like the answer. In other words, if they're not willing, if your employees are not willing to refer other people that they know, their family and friends, to work at your uh, in your operation, The question is, what would we need to do? What would we need to do in order to create fans, ambassadors, or champions in the community? You can ask them. Now, if you ask the right way, if you ask in an open, safe environment, if you ask several different ways, not to intimidate, but to make it clear that you want the answer, you'll get the answer. Somebody will say to you, well, you could get rid of George. He's such a pain in the ass. And then you'd know what the issue is and you'd know what the obstacle is. Well, you could offer us all another two bucks an hour. Well, if we can't offer you two bucks an hour, what would we do? What could we do? What might we do? Now, if that sends you to talk to the Medicaid board about increasing the rates at your center, many of you already have had that conversation. The question is, are you sharing that information with your employees? Do they know how hard you are working to get them what you believe they deserve? And my hunch is that many of your employees aren't aware of how hard you're working to do that. Finally, with regards to recruitment, I want to talk a little bit about advertising because historically, advertising has been an important part of where we where long-term care operations went to find new employees and this is a this is a pretty typical print advertisement for certified nursing assistants i just pulled this out of out of a out of a online newspaper e-journal this is what it's done this is how it's done now oh my gosh please don't that's just absolutely the wrong way to do it if you want to attract individuals of a particular age or demographic profile, and you should know who that is, it, and then you want to talk to them where they are. And here's a snip from TikTok. I pulled this um, over a month ago now. Uh, this person, Potatoes Michelle, uh, she was talking about working in uh, long-term care. She loves her job She's a nursing student and works as a CNA. Um, the TikTok uh, clip is absolutely adorable, and she looks like what you're after, and so you're apt to attract more of her. Um, if your target is an older Haitian uh, population in your marketplace area, there's a dense population of Haitians, then you know where you're apt to see them. You're uh, you're apt to see them. You have to reach them uh, through public posters, through billboards, in bus stations, other transport centers. So you want to go where they are, but you first have to understand what you're after. Uh, These little uh, postage stamp ads in newspapers and on job boards just don't cut it anymore. Here's another ad that I thought was quite good because it gets to the issue of Uh, The altruistic appeal of the nature of the work. Love your job and your team members too. And this demographic, this uh, 20-year-old, early 30-year-old person, uh, she has to like whom she works with. She's not going to stay. I I don't know about you. I'm a certain age when the first job I had, my boss yelled at me. uh, Said, do that. You screwed that up. Do that. Don't do that. And today, my kids would have quit had somebody spoken to them that way. Um, So the dynamics have changed a lot. And if we're going to succeed, we need to adapt and adapt effectively. So the best case response here in this current nursing, in the current staffing crisis in long-term care is to retain, recruit. And now I want to talk a little bit about cultivating culture and relationships. So culture, I want to get clear about what I mean by culture. I mean it at a very high or very deep, depending on your perspective, level. I mean the the dominant set of rules, often unspoken, that guide individual behavior within groups. So these are the unspoken rules that dictate behavior within groups. And I think we can all identify with with that definition. Uh, Culture is too often the root cause of our failures and not often enough a root cause of our success. There are some stellar examples of organizations in the long term care sector with outstanding cultures. And my hope is that each of you will aspire to be Uh, a culture that's outstanding, to cultivate an outstanding culture. And I just love this quote from Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for lunch. You might have the best strategy. You might have the best building. You might have the best software. You might have the best leadership. You might have the capital you need. But if your culture doesn't get it, if your culture doesn't nurture the workforce required to deliver the care, you're toast. So I really like, uh, my colleague and client uh, introduced me to this concept, the Eden Alternatives Golden Rule. As managers treat staff, so shall staff treat elders. And in the traditional approach, I got to say that most of the tasks, most of the rules we've cultivated have to do with compliance with regulations, compliance with uh, labor law, uh, the perspective that labor is replaceable, that operations use a command and control communications methodology, and that authority was handed down from above, and that obedience in a very Catholic, very Judeo-Christian model, obedience was expected and assumed. Well, that that's just yesterday. Uh, the models today are very different. We need to build skills among our existing team members and sometimes even ourselves around conflict management, handling confrontations, empathetic listening, and how we build trust. Trust is constructed. It isn't given from above. It doesn't come upon us like amazing grace. Trust is the result of specific things that individuals do between each other and within intact work groups. And if your teams don't trust your leadership, if your teams don't trust each other, there are signs and there are cracks uh, in the foundation. So, How do we cultivate systems and training? Well, for frontline caregivers like CNAs, and I mean MedTech CNAs, frontline caregivers, and and could be included in this uh, dietary as well. um, Is there a career ladder? I love the idea promulgated by Lori Porter uh, of directors of nurses assistants. Do you have a director of nursing assistants? Uh, are there cna specialists and skin care fall prevention people with, caring for people with dementia or, or those who are uh, orienting new staff or those who are designated as family liaison for those families that are grieving for example those families who haven't been able to see their the individual that that they're related to within the institution because of uh, covid or other reasons so there are Systems that we can employ, engage with our employees that show these frontline that show these frontline caregivers the respect they deserve, and assign value to their roles uh, when we too often aren't able to offer them value in their paychecks. So with that, I'm going to stop. I'm going to invite you all to uh, add questions to the slides. And thank you again for add questions into the question and answer box. And thank you again for listening. I'm keen to hear your questions.
0: Thank you, Irving. Thank you for that informative webinar. So please do take a moment and um, add your question to the Q&A on the right-hand side of the panel at the moment. I mean, can you see any of your side, any questions? Yes,
1: I have a, I have a question here. let um, see if I can. How do we do this with no budget? Oh my gosh, what a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a very good question. I, I, I've tried in most of the suggestions, most of the suggestions I've offered The resources are available either at no cost or very low cost. The suggestions that I made for from the Society for Human Resources Management, that's SHRM, and there'll be a citation to SHRM in the the Society of Human Resources Management. Uh, There'll be a reference to several of their resources in the slide deck and I believe they are also cited in our um, on our website so all of the things that I've suggested can be undertaken at low at no or very low cost the issue is that you as operations managers and leaders and I did get to look through the list and people who signed up, and most of you are operational supervisors, managers, even owners and operators, the, the requirement is that you look at these issues as though you were being audited and you have to do them in your organization. The requirement to insert training for empathetic listening is every bit as important as the requirement that you insert training on dealing with the antipsychotic medications, the requirement for training for dealing with persons with Alzheimer's and related disorders. These are important clinical dimensions on which you will be audited. If you consider the requirement for empathetic listening skills, if you consider the requirement for uh, dealing with uh, Conflict and confrontation, skills to deal with that. If you considered that part of your systems based auditing, you would find the time, make the time to locate the resources and to deploy those resources within your operations. All of this can be done at, at no or very low cost. Uh, so the question. One of the questions here that I see is, would you please post the slide deck? Absolutely. It will be available. It will be, You'll get a link to the deck uh, in the yeah. email following. Next question. Any experience with offering an incentive to staff members who refer individuals who are hired? Yes. I have quite a lot of experience with this, both positive and not so positive. And here are the issues with. Um, Uh, Referral bonus. I'm going to call it a referral bonus. So this is a cash incentive paid to an existing employee who refers a non-employee to your organization who is then subsequently hired. So those types of bonuses must be managed very, very carefully. They have a systemic way of backfiring. And here's how they backfire. Uh, You have, for example, uh, a large group of very loyal long-term employees. Uh, One of those individuals decides that, oh yeah, I know two people I could refer and I could get two referral bonuses. So she refers and indeed those two people are hired and she receives those two referral bonuses. The other long-term care employees who did not put their social equity at risk by referring a prospective employee, those other two employees will, one of them almost guaranteed, will feel um, hurt, will feel loss, will have a have an unpleasant experience of. Well, she got that money. How come I didn't get that money? I referred to somebody once before and I never got anything for that. So the equity, perceived equity, not just the system's equity, but the perceived equity of these things need to be managed very carefully. And the risk is that if you're working in an environment and most nursing centers have quite a lot of employees, assisted living residences, have quite a few employees, the culture, the rumor mill, the comments, the water cooler talk can turn very negative, very fast. And if you're working in a union-based environment, it can get even more complicated. So my experience, and thank you for the question, Anne. Uh, my experience with offering incentives to staff members is that it's a very good idea, but it's got to be handled very, very carefully and very transparently. And no, no opacity here. No, no shady, shady areas. The other thing is that non-cash incentives are more difficult to manage, but often have greater attraction to exactly the psychographic, sociographic whom you want, and are less prone to create that kind of backlash. So I like non-cash based or hybrid incentives way better. And one more thought about incentives. If you've had a referral bonus incentive program in place for some time now, cancel it, cancel it publicly, go through the process, because what the research shows very, very clearly is that incentives, all kinds of incentives uh, wear out people become inured to them. They get, um, they, they just don't see them anymore. So in order to rejuvenate them, in order to re-energize them, it's necessary to go through the process of publicly canceling it, reconstituting it, and then re-offering it again. And I would do that at least twice a year for your employee um, incentive program.
0: Yeah, great idea, Evan, thank you. And um, I think that that was our final question, and well, all we I've have another. I've got another. Oh, you have.
1: Of, I don't know how many how much time we have. We got another. Minute. We have
0: one one minute left. Go for it. Let's finish okay. on this question.
1: Okay. So, uh, more frequent review meetings sound good, but if you keep asking what employees want, isn't that opening the candy store and setting you up for having to tell employees that they can't? keep having more, even if you want uh see, thank you for this. This is really good. Let me read the whole thing up. Granted, more frequent open quote review close quote meetings sound good, but if you keep asking what employees want, isn't that opening the candy store and setting you up for having to tell employees that they can't keep having more, even if you want to give them more dollars responsibility, Etc. Well, thank you for that question. It's a great question. And the answer is no. Uh, What this question portrays is your perspective on the process. And I'm attempting to shift that dynamic in it from your point of view. These quote unquote reviews should not always necessarily, and in I would argue the case, not most of the time even, should a a performance appraisal review be attached to an expectation of compensation review, I would like you to disconnect those two, uncouple those cars, because performance appraisal should be just that, and pay rate review should be just that. And they can and should be distinct and separate both in your eyes and in the supervisor's eyes and in the employee's eyes. And accomplishing that requires saying it, doing it, saying it again, doing it again, saying it over and over again. And yes, it may not be possible to always increase the ante, but if you're listening to what your employees are telling you about job flexibility, about the location of supplies, about the factors that drive their ability to do their jobs effectively. There's all kinds of things. There's almost an unending list of small changes that can be made. And when those changes are made, attributed to the feedback from employees that enable those changes to be made. And that's the kind of Positive cycle of change that can, and I would argue, uh, must be developed in our environments if we're going to shift this culture. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Irving Thank you, and I think uh, I think we'll end on that note today. So thank you all for attending today's webinar. We do hope you found it informative. Please take a moment and tell us how we did. You'll be asked. To fill in a very brief slide at the end of this webinar. And it's the only way we can learn how to improve our presentations. Thank you once again and we look forward to seeing you at a future programme. Have a great day, evening, everyone, and stay and stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Erve.